become a major influence in uh, the thought and the theology of many uh, of, of many Protestants from the time of the 16th century Reformation up until this very present moment. As a matter of fact, between Luther and Calvin, they had their distinctives and differences in terms of understanding the gospel, but they both drew heavily on Augustine as a source. Uh, Luther quotes him frequently throughout his work, and Calvin references the work of Augustine or the thought of Augustine throughout his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, one of Augustine's most enduring and most penetrating and probably very powerful uh, quotes is, well, actually we're familiar with a couple that that are very common among Protestants, one that God has, O Lord, thou hast created us for thyself and our soul knows no rest until it rests in thee. But one of his most powerful quotes is actually in the form of a prayer, and to paraphrase it, it goes something along the lines of, O Lord, command what you will, and grant what you command. Command what you will, and then grant what you have commanded. This prayer became somewhat controversial. Another 5th century uh, monk in the church, um, Pelagius, had an issue when he heard of that prayer. And he declared that it was, it was blasphemous, to say the least. Because the implications of the prayer is that what Augustine was saying is, Lord, go ahead and command what you desire for us, and then give us what you have commanded. And, 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 and Pelagius understood the implications of what Augustine was saying because essentially he, he understood Augustine to be saying that the commands of God need to be enabled by God himself or else we wouldn't do it. And it's, this is what caused Pelagius to argue on behalf of human ability, not only from birth, In fact, Pelagius' full-blown Pelagian thought is the idea that the the sin of Adam only affected Adam and it gave us a negative example for us not to follow. And God would not require anything from his image bearers that we are not fully able to do. The difference between Augustine and Pelagius on this issue is twofold. Number one, to understand the nature of our fallen condition. In other words, Augustine understood that man comes forth from the grave or from the womb unable to do what God has required us to do. On the other hand, Pelagius views man as coming forth from the womb as if he were Adam in the garden and therefore is fully capable of being and doing everything that God has called us to do. Now we have, we have a middle ground. 
that many people have found that between the Augustinian view of the human condition and the Pelagian view of the human condition. So therefore, what as, as a full-blown Pelagian view is the idea that man is able and can be assisted by grace, but is in no need of grace in order to be and do what God has called us to do. The semi-Pelagian view is the idea that man is affected by Adam's sin. Therefore, we are not fully able to be and do what God has called us to be and to do, and we need assistance to do it. That's what they call semi-Pelagian, and so therefore man is able if he is enabled. Not dead in trespasses and sins, but in a deep coma. And so there is the difference between the two. Now, here's my point. I, I want to use, I want to go back to Augustine's prayer. Lord, command what you will and then grant what you command. I don't know if Augustine's prayer was inspired in any way by our text, but uh, certainly I think we can see the similarity between Augustine's prayer and really what is in essence a prayer petition that is set forth in our text. And so what I want to do is three things. First off, we want to look at, we want to look at, at um, the, the recognition for, for divine grace in our sanctification. We'll look at the need for divine grace in our sanctification. Secondly, we will look at the mechanics of divine grace in our sanctification. And then thirdly, we want to possess this petition as our own. So those are the three things that we want to do. We, we want to first, we want to begin by looking at the fact that one of the fruits of saving grace is the recognition of our perpetual need for grace, even in our sanctification. So one of the fruits of grace, I, I think that phrasing is important. One of the fruits of saving grace is the recognition of our perpetual need for grace in our sanctification. Now, the writer says this, he says, deal bountifully with thy servant. Another way of putting it would be to be gracious with your servant. Be gracious with your servant. And what is the reason that he is petitioning God for this grace? So that I may live and keep your word. Be gracious to your servant so that I may live by and keep your word. In other words, the writer here is acknowledging. In fact, the very fact that he is calling upon God is itself a work of grace. He recognizes that, he, that, that all of his salvation is in what God himself has provided. And therefore, he is petitioning God for more grace to carry out the things that God himself has commanded in his word. Now, there are some well-meaning brothers and sisters who I think wrongly assume 
that justification, and when we talk about justification, justification is God declaring us to be righteous because of the imputed righteousness of another. And so there are some well-meaning brothers and sisters who wrongly assume that justification is solely a work of God and sanctification is solely a work of the justified. In other words, they would say that justification is what God brings to our salvation and now in sanctification, it's us doing what God has commanded us to do. And I know what they mean by that, but I think they're wrong. I think it's wrong to say that God saves us and now it's up to us to stay saved. This is one of the reasons that people have all sorts of twisted views on, 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 on eternal security. Eternal security simply means that we believe that those whom God chooses unto salvation and those to whom he gives saving faith to will persevere in that faith until the very end. But here's what we need to understand. That while on the surface this idea that justification is solely a work of God and sanctification is solely a work of the justified sinner, this may seem on the surface to make sense, but the broader teaching of Scripture goes against the grain of it. And the problem that we have is that if we begin with God and, then, and, and we think that God says, okay, now that I save you, the rest of it is up to you, then we enter into the grounds in which we boast in something that we don't have the ability to boast in. In fact, I would argue that what we end up doing is we enter into an area where we can either be easily deceived or easily really de uh, de destroyed. Destroyed because we become despondent at the reality, deceived in thinking that we have accomplished something that we are not able to do. But I would argue further that if we took the position that God saves us in justification and now we maintain that salvation by ourselves in sanctification, then we are going against the grain of Scripture. The broader teaching of Scriptures is that we are dependent upon the grace of the triune God as much in our sanctification as we are dependent upon him in our justification. Now let me just cite a couple of passages that make this point even more profoundly. Jesus in John chapter 15 verse 5, he says rather pointedly, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. Now that's pretty emphatic. Jesus is making it clear that apart from me, and he does not just say, apart from me you cannot come to the Father. Here he is talking about the works that are born by those who are in him. And his point is absolutely clear that without him we can do nothing that is pleasing to the Father. Another passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always observed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Therefore, I reiterate that once that, that one of the fruits of saving grace is the recognition of our perpetual need for grace even in our sanctification. Paul says in Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are we now going to finish in the flesh? So therefore, when it comes to saving grace, we are saved by the power of God himself as a, an expression of his grace towards us, but even in our sanctification, we are dependent upon divine grace. We've said in the past that even our righteousness, as it comes forth as saved believers, as, as believing sinners, our righteousness is still stained. It is still flawed. It is still imperfect. But yet it is accepted before, by God because it is attached to Christ Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, our sanctification is not just us, but our sanctification is itself in need of divine grace. Grace to work towards those things that God has indeed called us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul reminds the, uh, his readers of this, that not only do we have salvation in Christ, but in chapter 1, verse 30, he makes it clear that everything that we have, in fact, let's look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He says this, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption for this reason. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So then, not only, and, and what I find interesting here is that Paul says that Jesus is not only wisdom and our righteousness, he is our righteousness, but he says that he is our sanctification. And so therefore, what is demonstrated here in Psalms 119 is that one of the fruits of genuine saving grace is the recognition on the part of the recipient of our perpetual need for grace in our sanctification. Well, that brings us to the second thing, the second consideration, which is the mechanics of divine grace. The the, one of the fruits of saving grace is the recognition for the need for continuing grace in our sanctification. But here's the question. How does divine grace work in our sanctification? In our justification, God's grace works in this way, that God shows us that the righteousness that he requires is given in his son. And he shows us that through the death of his son, that the penalty for our failures have been accomplished. 
It, is, it has already been paid. So then, how does saving grace or, or how does divine grace work as it relates to our, uh, as it relates to our sanctification? Well, verse 18 of our text says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What a statement. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Jonathan Edwards says this of the human will and mind. He says that the will is nothing more than the mind choosing. And the mind always chooses what it perceives to be of the highest good. Now, a couple things on that very thought. The will is nothing more than the mind choosing, which means the will is not a separate part of us. It's only a function of the mind. The will is the function of the mind. It's, it's, it's kind of like um, if I tell you, if everyone who's sitting down, I say, put your hands in your lap, you'll put your hands on your lap. And then if I say, now stand up and put your hands on your lap, you should have a quizzical look on your face. And you know why? Because when you stand up, you don't have a lap. <laughs> because the lap is nothing more than the top part of your thighs when you are seated. Some, for some reason, your thighs, the top part of your thighs when you're standing up, they are not a lap. And so the same thing with the human will. The human will is not another part of us. Man consists of two parts. And someone will say, wait a minute, aren't we a trichotomous being? No, we're two parts. God scooped man out of the dust, so therefore we are physical. And then secondly, he breathed into his, his nostrils the breath of life. Therefore, we are spiritual. Now, the physical part that is made out of the dust, we don't have a problem in saying that my arm, my leg, my foot, my toe, that these are not separate of the body. They are part of the body. In other words, they are capacities of my physical existence. In the same way, the spiritual part of man is described in some places as spirit, in some places as soul, and in some places as heart. But they are all descriptions of the same thing, and, and that is the breath of life that has been breathed into man. So man is two parts. He is body and he is soul. His body consists of constituent parts, and so does the soul. The soul consists of its rational self. It consists of a, of a, of a metaphysical dimension. In other words, it is the mind, because when we talk about the mind, we're usually not talking about the brain. The brain is, is, is really used by the mind, but the mind is not the brain. The brain is a physical reality, the mind is part of our spiritual reality. Now, the reason I say that is because what, what the writer is indicating here is that since the mind always chooses what it perceives to be good, what he is using for mind is really eyes. He says, open my eyes. 
And he's referring by eyes, I would say instead of just the mind, he's really referring to the human will when he says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. In other words, Lord, let me see in your law what is desirable for me. Now, a couple of things to, to hold in mind here. One, in our natural state, we do not see the commands of God as wondrous. Another way of actually putting this would be um, to see the beauty of holiness. Even if we seek to perform it, we do not, without the illuminating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we do not see the beauty of holiness. Uh, I shared a number of times a gentleman that came to me years ago. He was a member of our church, and he used to come up to me, and he would say, I love you, brother. I love you. And then he would always throw in this. And I really got tired of it. You know, I, I really, I, I got tired of it. He would always say, I love you, brother. And then he would say, because if I don't love you, I won't go to heaven. And I'm like, would you just shut up already? <laughs> okay. Because trying to fake like you love me is not going to get you to heaven. So you, you missed the whole point. You, you missed the point of that. By, by doing anything, we, we don't see. Here's what God desires of us is that we would see in what He requires something that is desirable. That's what the writer is, is indicating here. Open my eyes that I may see in your law wondrous things. Open my eyes to the point where I can see in the things that you require. In other words, don't let me look at the law and see it just as a checklist of the things I need to do in order to get to heaven. Don't let me see in your law just the threats of what if I don't do it. But let me see in your law that which is desirable to me. In other words, change my will. Because if the mind always does, what the, the will is nothing more than the mind choosing. And the mind chooses what it perceives to be of the highest good. So let me see in your law that which is desirable to me so that I can love it, not so that I can get to heaven or not so that I can get rewarded, so that I can pursue the things that you have set forth in your law because I truly and genuinely love it. Look at the way Paul describes the fallen mindset. We've made this reference on a number of occasions, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, and he's speaking to, he's speaking to those who are believers among the Ephesians, and remember, he reminds them of what they once were. And in verse, beginning in verse 17, he says, Now this I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now walk, that simply means manner of life, that your manner of life should no longer be like the rest of the unbelieving Gentiles. And notice this, he says, 
in the futility of their minds, in the emptiness of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so here's the warning that he's giving here, not warning in terms of a threat, but he's simply humbly reminding these Ephesian believers that they, like the Gentiles, have a natural propensity towards thinking that is geared more towards the flesh than it is to the, than it is a reflection of the illumination that we have by the Spirit. So the reason we act the way we act, sometimes we act more out of our conditioning than our recreating. And that's the challenge that he's giving here. Um, in, in fact, all of us do it, and as we say, and in fact, a good, a good place that summarizes it is, is, is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. And I'm going to just insert in there every avenue that we take is because it seems good at the time. Every choice, every decision that we make, every person that we choose to slight, every person that we refuse to forgive because in that moment it seems good at the time. And so we are always acting according to what seems best. So therefore, the writer says, Lord, open my eyes. Let me see this differently. But here's the second part of that. Not only in our natural state are we not able to see the wondrous things in God's law. In other words, in our natural state, we are not able to see what is desirable about the things that God requires even if it brings social order, we don't do it. Sometimes, especially devoutly religious people, a lot of things we don't do because it's not because we love, but it's because we fear. Now, if fearing the wrong, if fearing reper, uh, repercussions is causing you to be better, then keep doing it. But I hope that you learn this prayer. I hope you, you can own this prayer as the writer does. But, but here's the second thing. It is not until we have received the grace of the gospel that we can see the beauty and the desirability of God's wondrous law. Which is why Paul, in fact, turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you'll notice something that Paul says, and he talks about unbelievers, but I'm going to extend that because I think we are all unbelievers at certain points. I love the statement of the man who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, bears weight even on this issue. Notice what he says. He says, beginning in verse 3, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we are, or for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant. For God who said, let light shine in, uh, out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, if it, it is not until we receive the grace of the gospel that we can be illuminated, to our hearts and our minds can be illuminated to see the beauty and the desirability of what God's law itself requires. And it's for this reason that Satan seeks to keep our minds blinded from the gift of the gospel. Not just for unbelievers that they would stay in unbelief, but Satan doesn't want you to see the beauty of God's gospel in any given situation so that you would revert to the flesh rather than trust the spirit and let your eyes be awakened to the beauty of holiness. I was looking at a post earlier this week on a lady had just kind of put it out there. I read kind of behind the story, but here was what the story was initially about a woman who at her wedding, her mother-in-law shows up in a wedding dress. <laughs> and, and so it showed, she, she tweeted it, as we do these days. She tweeted the story of her mother-in-law showing up at her wedding in a wedding dress. And everybody was just incensed. I hope you did this and I hope you did that and how she was trying to outshine. But she says, so the lady who originally made the post, she says, but, but I want to give you the other side of the story. The other side of the story is I wasn't upset. And she says, here's why. She says, my mother-in-law grew up, she grew up impoverished. There's a certain condition that, I forget what the name of it is, but she was so impoverished that, that she, was, she would be found at the age of three and four years old in the kitchen where they had the kitchen matches, eating the, the matches, uh, the, 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 the top off of the matches because she, wasn't, she didn't have enough to eat. And she talked about how in her, her, her family that they didn't have enough, oftentimes just things they just didn't have. And, and so how she grew up impoverished. And so as she grew up, she became very frugal. And she says, when I say frugal, I mean she was frugal to the point that if she would go out and order a Bloody Mary, she would take the celery and she would take whatever vegetable, I don't know what's on a Bloody Mary, but she would take the celery and take it home so that she could use it again. She would make sure that, that when she would go to a, a, a restaurant that she would have, she would bring an empty water bottle and keep ordering water and then pour that water in her bottle so she would have it again. She said, I'm paying for it. And so here was the rationale behind the wedding dress. That when she wanted to go to her, her son's wedding to this woman, that she, she was looking for the best price dress she could get. And she ordered it online, and lo and behold, it was a wedding dress. But because she's frugal, she wore it anyways. And the, the, the woman who posted the, the, the story, she says, but you know what, here's what you have to understand about my mother-in-law, that she is a giving 
and a loving and a compassionate woman. She said, when I was pregnant, she was there every day. When I had my triplets, she would drive halfway across town to stay up with the two that I wasn't able to take care of. She'd sleep on the couch so that I could make sure that I had rest. She would babysit anytime I needed. Anything that we needed, we needed. So when she showed up with a dress, a wedding dress, I was not offended. Brothers and sisters, here's what I'm saying. There's two ways that we can see another woman showing up in a wedding dress. We can see it through the lens of our culture and conditioning. Or we could see it through the lens of the person. What this woman did is she wasn't offended because she knew the person. And she knew that the woman was not trying to steal her shine. She was just being true to what she was. She got a dress at a discount, and she wore it to her wedding. You see, brothers and sisters, some things we can't see until we allow the light of the gospel to penetrate into our own darkness so that we can see deeds for something other than what we've been conditioned to see. It's amazing how when we are really pointing at faults and when we're really looking for stuff, we can interpret the least thing in the most profound way. The turn of a head, the roll of an eye, the way that we smile, we can read so much into it. But here's what the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. The mechanics by which grace, divine grace works in human sanctification is through the opening of our eyes. Jackson Brown, one of my favorite songwriters, when in one of his songs, it's the, the title of the song is Here Come These Tears Again. And, and, and he has a line in that song where he's broken up with the girl, and I guess at one point she wants to get back together and just be friends. And he says this, he says, when I can look at you without crying, then you might be a friend of mine. In other words, when I look at you, and I'm not shattered by the failed romance, it's only then that I can be your friend. Here's what the writer is asking. Is Lord... Open my eyes so that I can see the beauty of holiness even as I deal with this situation. Open my eyes so that I can see the brother that I'm supposed to love not through the deeds that he's done, but that I could see that it's desirable to love him like I've been loved by you mechanics of grace, divine grace in human sanctification works at the level of our eyes that function for our will and our mind. We go where we go because we want to be there. We do what we do and say what we say or don't say 
Because in that moment, it seems better for us to do that. Think about your grudges. Why do we hold grudges? Because somewhere in our reasoning, it is better for us to hold a grudge. Here's what the writer is saying. Lord, open my eyes so that I may not see the offense, but I would see the beauty of your holiness. Well, that brings us to the third and final thing, and that is a prayer petition. Here's my prayer for all of us. My prayer is that the spirit and the content of this prayer petition would be the daily prayer for all of us that we indeed would seek from the Lord the grace that is necessary to see the beauty of holiness, that God would open our eyes, husbands and wives, that we would, he would open our eyes, that we would not bring up yesterday's news to today's breakfast table, that he would open our eyes so that we would see that it is more, it is, it is desirable, more desirable for me to give and to love as I have been loved by God. Rather than to view someone according to my scorn. I pray that God would cause us to see that it is not possible for us to walk one step in the direction of what he has required unless he empowers us to do so. So here's my prayer request. We all pray for a lot of different things. We pray for job promotions. We pray for health. We pray for strength. We pray for financial security. We pray for friends. We pray for people. Pray that we would include in our prayers the substance and spirit of this petition. Lord, be gracious to me so that I would walk in your word and open my eyes so that I would see the beauty of the path of obeying your word. Not so that I can be rewarded, not because I'm afraid of hell, but let me pursue what you've called me to pursue because I want it. I pray that we would pray that because as James says, that if anyone asks of wisdom, he'll give it to you. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to just keep on being short. We can hold out our hands and say, Lord, I have failed to speak, to think, and to act like you've called me to. I've said stuff. I've, I've felt things. I've, I've harbored stuff that I shouldn't. So now deal gracious with me so that I can walk in the light of your word. Then open my eyes so that I may indeed see that it's desirable. Amen.
us pray.